strange song, strange song, isn't it? That's the point. Uh, there's some strange stories in the Bible, and uh, we've been unpacking some of those this summer, and today, uh, this is a weird story. It's strange, but it honestly is as challenging an application, I think, as we've had for a while, and so I think you're in for a treat, perhaps, but it's going to be a challenge. Um, we're going to read from Acts chapter 5 this morning, verses 1 to 10. John W. Wright is going to read for us. John, if you'll step up. What we do here is we uh, stand and face the middle of the room for the reading of God's Word, uh, since we, we truly believe Scripture is central to who we are as a community of faith and uh, who we are as Christians. John, when you're ready, Acts 5. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some of the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. And then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Thanks a lot, John. You can have a seat. Pretty cool story, huh? <laughs> now, I want to just qualify this morning by saying... If anyone happens to pass out here this morning, don't assume the worst of that person or their physical condition. Ironically, the air conditioning wasn't on before the first service. It was really warm in here, and I could just envision someone get a little overcome by the heat and goes down for the count. And um, anyway, it didn't happen yet. Quick review. A few years ago, we went through a book called The Story, which was the Bible in novel form. It was an awesome experience, and we walked from Genesis to Revelation, but there were uh, several stories that were quite honestly off the map, a little bit strange that we didn't cover. We wanted to back up and cover those this time, and there's a little different format in how we usually speak here, and that is to try to emphasize the three different perspectives of the stories we have three different locations, so we're not trying to be cute or uh, whatever, but we want to move to a position to accentuate a point. That place right there, that uh, music stand, we call the lower story, and when we want to tell the details of the story or the narrative, we head to that stand, and so you'll be learning the details of the story there. To your right, uh, that uh, 
platform there that's called the upper story. And it's always interesting, part of the dilemma of these strange stories is to try to discern what God's perspective, what God's purpose and will is in these stories. So when we attempt that, and again, haltingly, humbly, we go to that platform and talk a little bit of theology, talk a little bit about God's perspective. Then this is called our story, meaning this platform in the chair um, is the place we come for application's sake. So we move around from place to place, flit and float through the course of what you're about to hear, but that's the purpose behind the three uh, locations. Also, uh, just somewhat of a purpose statement for this series is the story, Stranger Things, uh, simply means that God is at work and the unexpected things of life. You buy that? That's the journey. A lot of things we may understand in life, there's some things that just don't make sense. Situations, relationships, whatever it may be. And uh, the point for this series is that God is still at work in ways we can't understand um, in the unexpected things of life. The passage we keep revisiting, if you want to call it a theme verse or passage, is from Isaiah 55, which says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And one of the most difficult things we struggle with uh, is often we create God in our own image, the way we think God should respond, uh, when truthfully the opposite is the reality that God is so far beyond our comprehension and his ways at times are beyond our comprehension and expectation. And I think maybe coming to terms with that is called a step of faith. Uh, today we're going to talk about the church. And you heard this story, right? I think it's a cool story. I'm hoping God doesn't do that to anyone in this room today. But the church can be a strange place. I mean, it's stranger things. Well, that could be a church. I was reading this past week of conflicts in churches. These are actual conflicts that have taken place recently in American churches. I thought you might be interested. I'm not implying this church has any conflicts whatsoever. We have no conflicts whatsoever. Right? Right. That's right. What you don't know won't hurt you. No, we, do, we really don't. This is a fairly healthy place. In case you're wondering if you're visiting, if this is a subliminal message to a group of people in this section, it's not. <laughs> this section, perhaps. Um, here's one. Church was conflicted, got into a huge debate and uh, argument over which picture of Jesus to place in the foyer. Okay? Huge debate. At one point recently in a church, it took two complete church board meetings to resolve the argument over whether the church should purchase a weed eater or not. It only takes us one meeting to do things like that. We're a weed eater. On another church, there was an argument on whether the church should allow deviled eggs at the church meal. I bet you never thought about that before. Um, we can break into small groups, have that chat. And obviously, only if you serve angel food cake can you serve... Oh, never mind. <laughs> and then this is my, my favorite, uh, because we do so well eating here. Had a great potluck last week. I mean, we eat really well here. There was another church that had a significant disagreement over the use of the term potluck. And you know where I'm going with this? 
Somehow, the argument within the church that the concept of luck contradicted the theology of a sovereign God, and they got into a full-blown argument and debate at leadership level of, so that, you know what they call it instead? Pot blessing. <laughs> that sounds like something you'd find in Colorado or Washington. <laughs> so from now on, hear ye, hear ye, we will be scheduling pot blessings for you and not of the Colorado variety. And then this one too, it's so classic. How do we, how do we get here in, into this kind of stuff? Uh, there was a dispute in another church over whether the church should allow people to wear black t-shirts to church and anywhere else, any other meetings. And you understand why. It's the color of the devil. Don, is that a black t-shirt? I'm sorry. I am so sorry. Uh, anybody wearing red, we should go there if we're going to go. Uh, okay, the church can be a strange place. It, it can be a strange place. It can also be an amazing place. And this morning, uh, we're going to take a look at the story of the church in Jerusalem uh, in the time just after Jesus died and rose, uh, went to heaven, and this early form formative uh, period of the church. And so I'm going to go back to the story. And to do that, we always head up to this lower story uh, station. And I want you to go back with me, if you can, 2,000 years ago to the time of unprecedented growth and transformation in the life of a church. This is the church at Jerusalem. And all I can say about the momentum of this early church is it was breathtaking. Have you ever been part of a church that has grown so rapidly that it took your breath away? This is what happened. Um, in Acts chapter 1, right, uh, Dr. Luke is writing this uh, portion of the Bible, this book of the Bible. He states there's 120 believers waiting for the advent of the Holy Spirit, for the coming of the Holy Spirit. 120 believers. After three years of the Son of God doing his work on the planet, only 120. I've always thought that was a bit light. But then the Spirit comes, Pentecost comes, Acts chapter 2 states, 3,000 believers came into the kingdom, came into the church as a result of the sermon of Peter. The next a couple chapters later, chapter 4, 5,000 believing men and women and children, including, not including women and children. Imagine, we're talking over 10,000. Are we talking 15,000? How many people are we talking about that are now gathering at the temple, Solomon's Colonnade, daily, and you're seeing amazing things happen. Acts chapter 6, the number of disciples is rapidly increasing. It says that twice, and even a number of priests the hardliners, the Jewish hardliners were turning to the faith. <sighs> Can you imagine being a part of that group that was only 120 this week and a few months later, numbers in the tens of thousands? And not only was it the numbers, but everyone was filled with awe when they gathered together. There were miraculous signs, people were healed, and people shared their possessions People that had more shared with people who had less. And there was a lot of poverty in the Jerusalem church. Every day, it says, they met together in the temple. They ate together. We've got that down. They studied together. They worshiped together. The people were so impressed, the outsiders with this community, that every day, more and more people flocked into the community of faith. 
And every day, new people embraced the cause of Christ. They were transformed. Their eternal destinations were altered. It was an amazing moment. We've joked about the term before. It was one of those holy guacamole moments in the history of the church. And the church was a movement. It was a revolution. And you couldn't stop it. It wasn't a tradition. It wasn't an institution. It wasn't a social expectation. Let me just hop back down here for just a second. Wouldn't you love to be part of a church like that? Can you imagine? 120 seats in this room one Sunday. One Sunday later, well, we can fit 1,000 plus. What are you going to do? There are people in the parking lot. You have loudspeakers. And then a month later, you've got 5,000, 10,000. And it's not just the gathering. It's the sending that you have a wave of people that are so devoted to this newfound faith. They're transforming Jerusalem itself. And you know the rest of the story. They changed the world. Not just those people, but... Wouldn't you love to be a part of a church that made a difference? That changed lives? That impacted the Magic Valley? Well, would you? Eh, eh. I think we approach this thing so casually, we don't expect much. We've been around for too long. Oh, to be a part of a church that could truly make a significant difference. Not an an experiment in social engineering, but seeing people literally transformed before your very eyes because of Jesus. That was the moment that this story spoke into. Now, back to the story where God kills a couple people. I love this story. No, I'm just kidding. Here's what was happening. These Christians, and this looked like it was fairly routine, brought the proceeds from the sale of their house or their land and donated donated it to the church, to those that were less fortunate. They just put it in the hands of the apostles, eventually the deacons uh, that were formed a little later, and trusted them to distribute it as necessary. And uh, three times in this passage, if you were following, what they do, first of all, different individuals, anonymous individuals, bring the proceeds and this. Put it at the feet of the apostles as an act of worship, as an act of sacrifice. Just a short time before the story we read, a Christ follower named Barnabas. You'll bump into him more than once through the rest of the New Testament. Barnabas is a great guy. To know him is to love him. He's so encouraging. In fact, his name means the encourager. Barnabas sold a field and brought the money and, again, put it at the apostles' feet. I imagine him saying, hey, listen, do with it what you need to. Um, It's yours. Distribute it as necessary. And I'm sure the young people in the crowd, you know, were just overcome and started shouting, we love Jesus. Yes, we do. We love Jesus. And the older folks probably sang the doxology, okay? But anyway, it was a pretty cool moment in that church. Oh, that Barnabas. Um, A short time after that moment, there was another uh, individual who came and presented uh, the proceeds from 
land at the feet of the apostles. His name was Ananias, and you know where I'm going with this, the story of the day. And like others had before him, he lays the money, he says, the proceeds from the land at the feet of Peter. And all God's people, right, we know there was a group there. We're not sure how large the group was, where the group was. Was it even in the temple, in the colonnade, where the Christians usually met? We don't know that detail. But he put it at the apostles' feet. And it's such a great moment. You've seen it before, church members in Jerusalem, and here it is again. Only this time, instead of receiving the gift, I envision Peter's countenance darkening. And imagine being in that crowd that day when Peter says this, Ananias, How is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. And all God's people didn't say amen. My guess, you could have heard a pin drop. When something goes a little bit amiss here, it's, it's an awkward moment. Um, it gets real quiet. And imagine Ananias' surprise when Peter confronts him. And then, of course, what makes this story extremely weird is what happens next. Picture this. Ananias falls to the ground. you would have said, I wonder if he's okay. Um, The verse, what is it, Acts 5.5, when Ananias heard this, he fell down and he died. And obviously, not in time to call the EMTs, they knew he was gone. Now, just qualify it, there's nothing Peter does or says, he doesn't give him the, you know, the vibe or the, you know, this, this is an act of God, okay? We'll get to that in a little bit, why? God overreacts, apparently, to this particular sin. But Peter was just given the speech. And I wonder if Peter had a little more of the speech to give. And Ananias didn't make it through the speech. Um, What happens next is really, really bizarre as well. And we can kind of slough over this because of our lack of maybe understanding Some young men then came forward, wrapped up his body, carried him out, and buried him. Understand, you don't do that in Jewish culture. There's a longstanding tradition of and prescribed set of details about burial, proper burial. When When someone drops dead and you go place them in a hole immediately, it has something to do with recognizing this is a uh, unceremonial death. Uh, There is something wrong with this. And what they recognized in all probability is that something happened in Ananias that had to do with the judgment of God. And so they buried him dishonorably, unceremoniously. See them carrying Ananias' wrapped body out the back door, past your row, probably the center aisle. If if they had cell phones, somebody would be taking video of that, I'm sure. 
Um, three hours after that moment, and again, what, what's implied here is that these gatherings took a while. They were together quite a, quite a bit, quite long. Um, Ananias' wife, Sapphira, comes back to the gathering, not knowing what's just happened to her husband. Here's, here's the verses again. Uh, check it out. About three hours later, his wife came in and not knowing what had happened, Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Now, Peter is giving her a second chance. It's a mulligan. Um, Sapphira, and you wonder if he's not trying to lead her. Would you like to say something about the land? You've done that with your kids or your spouse once in a while? Would you like to say something here? She said, yes, that's the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you also. And they will carry you also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. It's never any fun to confront someone who's lying let alone the second person after the first person you've confronted has dropped dead. Picture the scene. So get this, the same young men, evidently, came took and took her, buried her unceremoniously, dishonorably beside her husband. The problem wasn't withholding a portion of the money God, throughout the Old Testament, only asks for 10% in the first place. The problem, the sin, was the deception that they implied they were giving it all away. You wonder what amount that was that they kept? 5%, 2%, 10%, 20% that cost them their lives? If we could ask them one day, hey, was that worth it? Here's the problem, and this is repetitive throughout the Old Testament. In Proverbs 15, 5, the author says, the Lord detests the sacrifice of the wicked, but the prayer of the upright pleases him. I'll, I'll say it again. The Lord detests people who give out of the wrong heart and the wrong frame of mind. It wasn't that their sacrifice wasn't big enough. It just wasn't honest enough. I want you to just reflect about that. The question, I want to ask a couple of questions on the story. First of all, why did they lie? And I would suggest, first of all, the problem with Ananias and Sapphira was pretense. They were pretenders. Their sin was in their deception. They pretended to bring the whole and only brought the part. And, they, and, and the problem with that is that they weren't just lying to Peter or the church, but the Holy Spirit, and in so do lying to God himself. And it was this hypocrisy that ultimately, and we know this, we know this, hypocrisy fuels superficiality and inauthenticity and, and then a sick form of self-righteousness when we're portraying something we're not. And what was the issue? Was it greed or pride or dishonesty? Arguably, arguably all those are related. And any one of them has the potential to corrupt the church. So why did they lie perhaps that? What did it matter? Here's, to this very day, here's the challenge. The cost of personal hypocrisy is the credibility of the faith community, us. 
The witness of the church then was dependent upon the integrity of the individuals. It still is. Hey, let me tell you another story quickly from the Old Testament. This is a very early in the formation of God's people, Old Testament style. Uh, the nation of Israel had just crossed into the promised land. They defeated uh, Jericho. If you know the story of Joshua in the battle of Jericho, whoop, whoop, it was an amazing story, right? And they walked, I believe, with a swag to the next city, ready to conquer them with one hand tied behind their backs. It was Ai, a smaller city. And they go in and assume that God is on their side and they're going to uh, kick tail, take names, and they're defeated. In fact, 36 of them are killed in this battle over this smaller uh, city. And God comes to Joshua. Now everyone's shaken, right? Because we thought we had this down. The promised land's ours. Not at all. And so God tells Joshua that someone has stolen some of the devoted things. The plunder from Jericho was supposed to be set aside as a tribute, as an offering to God. All of it. And there was a man named Achan. One guy stole a few devoted things, hid them, and thought he could get away with it. Long story short, they find out it's Achan. Achan and his family are stoned to death by the people of Israel. Just because it probably was a, yeah, probably may have been a felony, but maybe a misdemeanor in our cultural setting. Come on, God. A little bit of an overreaction. What's fascinating about the story of Achan and Ananias and Sapphira <clears throat> is when you translate uh, the story from the Old Testament into the Greek, the word that's used for what Achan did with those devoted things, with the, the sacred things devoted to God, is it says, the verb is, he kept back. He held back. It's a rare word in the Old Testament uh, when it's translated in the Greek, and perhaps even more rare in the New Testament when, when Luke, Dr. Luke, describes what Ananias and Sapphira did, he uses the same word kept back, held back. At formative moments in both movements, the Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church, God does the same thing. And we'll get to that in a few minutes of why he would do it. It is a parallel story. The story in Joshua parallels the story of the book of Acts. And in both stories, an act of deceit is interrupting the crucial formative moments of the people of God. And both stories underscore the necessity of honesty, authenticity, and integrity within the church. Let me, let me uh, head, up, head up the mountain here. And let's look at this from God's perspective. God, why the reaction? God, why did you act, react so strangely? Here's a couple of thoughts. First, that God's call into a faith community, into a church, anticipates great responsibility. God's calling was that his people would form the ultimate community. It would be his method of reaching the world. He said, listen, in Old Testament Israel, you are the ones that will be a blessing to the nations. New Testament terms, you're the church. You're going to do it. You're going to change the world for me. You're going to bring Jesus to the world. And are you ready? Are you ready? Yeah. Acts 5.11 
It's the first time in the New Testament that the New Testament refers to this group of Christians as the church. They are early on in forming an identity. And at this strategic moment in creating their new identity, this really matters. Honesty, authenticity. And both incidents draw an immediate and extreme judgment of God. Because if God didn't do something at this moment in their history, who knows what would have been compromised long-term in the effectiveness and outreach of his people. It's the timing of both of those two sins and the response of God in his judgment. Perhaps it accounts for the severity of their punishment. See, you are so special, says God to you. I don't even have to interpret this. This is what God believes about you. Again, 1 Peter 2 says, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are a chosen people a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, a special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful life. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Isn't that cool? That's who you are. You are members of the ultimate community called to the ultimate purpose, given the ultimate power through the Holy Spirit and the greatest message in all of time and history, the good news of the gospel. You're a spiritual house and every time you obey and do the right thing, it's like a a sacrifice. It's incense rising up before me, says God to heaven. And Jesus' call to follow him in the community called the church to an incredible opportunity, but in the same token, a great responsibility. I think we forget that from time to time. We treat this as something a whole lot less than that. The second perspective in this God's story here is that God's call anticipates our imitation of his holiness individually and collectively. And this is a verse that you'll find throughout Old and New Testament. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy, because God says, I'm holy. Jesus says, go and make disciples, teaching them all I've commanded you. Teaching them to what? Teaching them to obey. And in that obedience, we derive a lifestyle of holiness. And God never invited us to subscribe primarily to a list of do's and don'ts, but primarily to become a part of a transcendent cause one life at a time. And to be followers of Jesus, to be called into a community of like-minded believers is to respond to the challenge of moral and ethical consistency. Obedience to God's word creates a community that will be unique and distinct as it impacts, impacts people that you know and love and we impact the world. Here's what we do. I know the church matters and I appreciate that. Um, 
But often we treat the church uh, as another priority on the list of priorities. I know you've got 10 other things you could have been doing this morning. And so I really appreciate the fact that you're here. And the subtlety of our culture is good things draw us away from the body of Christ. It's just, it is what it is. We've got to figure out at some point if we're going to stand up and say enough is enough. 80 to 85% of churches in America are plateaued or declining. Get used to this while you have it because you never know what the future brings. And in the same way our morality, and we perhaps, uh, this is assimilated into the church via the culture, um, morality matters, but as long as it makes sense for me. I'm pretty moral most of the time, as long as it doesn't cost me. And uh, rather than uh, really striving in, in Christ with the Spirit's power within us, to be all that we can be, all that we've been called to be. And this, this quest for holiness. Now, we've been made righteous through Christ's blood, but the call to the church, the call to each of us as individuals, is to live a lifestyle of holiness. Be holy as I'm holy. I, was, uh, I read about a story of a, a shoplifter this week, endearing shoplifter. Uh, he lifted and then wrote the, to the department store and said this. This is from his letter. I've just become a Christian, and I can't sleep at night because I feel guilty. So here's $100. Here's the $100 that I owe you. And then he signed his name, and in a postscript at the bottom, he added, and if I still can't sleep, I'll send you the rest. (laughs) Now, I'm not implying anyone in this room has that particular problem. Use it, though, as an analogy that most of the time we behave. Most of the time we're obedient. Um, But when God calls us into a community, he raises the bar of expectations. We're not in this alone as individual Christians. What you did Friday night still matters to all of us. Uh, Your ability to resolve that conflict matters to all of us. Your consistency in language and your business ethics and how you do the deal will impact all of us. We are not in this alone. I think somehow, you know, in our individualized Christianity, we've kind of blown by the fact that God's call in the Old and New Testament is a call to community, first and foremost, which creates all sorts of opportunities for support and encouragement and worship, but also implies the responsibilities. Hey, and listen, man, no one here is perfect, okay? We got that one settled? That's not the issue. Um, I want you to think about this story and maybe apply it a little more loosely to your life. I want you to take a look at this last question of the day. Because I I said earlier it's a strange story, but maybe a real challenging uh, application. I think unwittingly, unknowingly, sometimes knowingly, we hold back. Um, it may be, a, it won't be a land that piece of property you sold, you know, and you, I don't take this portion literally, but I think in our walk of faith, there's times we, we've made a commitment to Jesus, we've made a commitment to serve the church, we've made a commitment to serve the cause of Christ somehow, and you know how life goes. We're busy. We're preoccupied. We're doing good stuff. I know most of you are doing good stuff, fun stuff. 
then I wonder, you know, how God looks at what we do. It may be in a relationship that um, you've got a conflict going on and it's, uh, and you're not going to give in because they wronged you. Uh, are you holding back forgiveness? And you, does that matter? I think it matters. Uh, and again, I don't want to scroll through all the, you do that, you know, um, got my own stuff. But I just want you to think about the potential of the body of Christ if none of us hold back. And, and maybe that's financial, maybe that's uh, volunteering. I mean, it would come off a week where 90 to 100 people served 265 little kids. They were put in harm's way, you know, for the kingdom of God, working VBS. I think that's awesome. Um, it may be personal. Anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that. What is it for you that if you were to really be honest before God and, and based on commitments from the past uh, and, and things like that, are, you, are we holding back anything? What are you keeping back? And I think it'd be a great moment for us to just clear the decks and go to God and uh, say, I'm sorry, confess it. Or you may go to God and say, and, and God may say to you through his spirit, um, good job. You've been consistent in what you've committed to. And you're seeing the fruit of that in some real tangible ways. I don't know, when we go to God and we really go to God, we speak, we listen for the voice of the Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus, stuff happens. Good things happen. And maybe, maybe uh, we can stop holding back and lessening the impact of the kingdom through the body of Christ. Hey, I believe in this church. I believe in its potential. But if we hold back, it's not going to happen. So I think it might be good just to uh, let me wrap up today by uh, no longer talking. I'll, I'll shut up here. And I just want to take a couple minutes of silence. And in those moments, uh, if you have something that maybe you've been holding back, just confess. It. And you know, the good news good news of this place, man, is God forgives the moment you ask. That's what Jesus does for us. And maybe there's a commitment you need to make. I don't know, whatever it is for you, but I think use the story, this strange story of Ananias and Sapphira uh, and allow this to maybe be a, a standing stone moment for you or a line in the sand, whatever you want to do. So let's just uh, yeah, shut your eyes, that's fine, keep them open, whatever you feel comfortable doing. But let's just go to God and ask the question, God, we hold anything back from you? Let's do that.
God, we're, we're so sorry for holding back from you, whatever it may be. Um, we're so grateful you're a forgiving God and a loving God. And, but we just want to tell you that we, we believe uh, in the body of Christ. We believe in the potential of the church. And so we just want to contribute whatever we can and deepen our commitment. As we deepen our commitment to Jesus, we deepen our commitment to the body of Christ. So Lord, help us there. And we're so thankful that you've entrusted with us uh, this incredible movement, this revolution, uh, the ultimate community, the church. And Lord, we really believe the church is the hope of the world. It's the hope of the Magic Valley. And so, Father, in just a subtle way, a simple way, help us to take the next step into our commitment uh, in the body of Christ together. And Lord, help us never to hold anything back. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you.